Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4, 23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the types of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. What we hear in this story this, this Advent story, this common story that we, uh, if you've grown up in the church, you've read every year since the, the age of five, you've heard this story. What I hear when I read this story is that presence is everything. That God's presence means so much that his presence speaks volumes. Have you ever been going through something difficult and all you need is somebody to come and sit with you, just to be present with you? They don't necessarily have to to bring all of the words or all of the wisdom. They're just present. Our presence speaks volumes. It says that I'm with you in your pain. I'm with you in the midst of your struggle. I'm walking with you. I care. One of my favorite childhood movies growing up was Hook. Anybody? Anybody? Such a great movie. Um, I mean, there's there's like unlimited one-liners in that movie. It's fantastic. If you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it. But there's one scene in particular that always, um, I think think especially as becoming a father, it's always kind of gripped me. It's left like that kind of gut sinking feeling um, where Peter Banning pulls up to the game that he had promised his son that he would make it to, that he would be there for him. And as he screeches, as the tires screech to, to pull into the park and he walks up over the hill, he sees that the game is over and all of the people have cleared away. And the scene as he comes home to his son's disappointment just leaves that, that pit in your stomach. It wasn't, the disappointment wasn't because he didn't have his dad in the stands telling him all the things, the expert advice of all the things that he should be doing during the game. I've been, I've been to sporting events with you guys. <clears throat> I know what it's like. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty of it, of it too. But that's not what the son needed. The son wanted his father's presence because presence communicates volumes. Presence shows that you are a priority, that you matter, that you are worth it, that of all the things that I could do, I am present with you at your event, at your thing, because I care about you. Presence is everything. Almost, uh, almost every night when we put our kids to bed, uh, we have... Uh, three kids, eight, nine, and 11. They're up here in the front. And uh, every night when we put them to bed, we send them upstairs 
And we say, all right, go get your jammies on, brush your teeth, and, uh, and, and, and go, go ahead and get, get ready for bed, and we'll be up in a little bit. <clears throat> and, um, and you know, you, you expect, you know, when they, they go up the stairs, and then you're immediately going to hear the water turn on because they're brushing their teeth. But no, instead, at our house, um, you see the, the lights start to shake um, on, the sec- on the first floor, and, and thuds and, and thunder steps as, uh, as bodies are, are flying into walls as they're playing one-on-one foot, tackle football. <clears throat> or they're, they're giggling or they're arguing or somebody's in tears because uh, their two-on-one soccer game isn't going how one planned. And then you call upstairs and you say, uh, that doesn't sound like you're getting ready for bed. Doesn't sound like you're putting your jammies on. It doesn't sound like because you have school in the morning or you have this or you have that, right? And so we've learned to use the Alexa to send an announcement even (laughs) because it gets gets their attention in just a a slightly different way. And so the uh, announcement comes on and says, we're coming up in two minutes. Get your jammies on. No water running, more thuds, more, more shaking of the lights. And uh, it doesn't really seem to change until the, the loud thundering footstep starts to hit the first stair. And they know that something is, at, well, I just have a video uh, to show you. <laughs> Everybody has jammies on? Everything's ready for bed? I'm coming up. <laughs> what? <laughs> all the thundering footsteps, all the, the, the clatter and games that were just happening. What, wait, where did they go? This oh, where did everybody go? I'm not telling stories from long, long ago. <laughs> you see, you see when all, all, of the, all of the commands from on high can mean, can mean nothing until the presence is made known. You see, when they sense their presence approaching, it speaks volumes. It means I'm serious about the things that I've said. It means, it means that I, I love you so much that I'm actually gonna come and be with you. For four weeks leading up to this day, we've been uh, looking at hope and peace and love and joy and what that means for us in our community, in our, in our context, in our world. But really what it means is that, that God is present. He cares about us. It means that, that he loves you so much that he's willing to make you a priority. It means that he's serious about the commands and the things that he said that we ought to do, so much so that he would come and be with us. Last week, we talked about John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. It's one thing to declare it from on high. It's a whole nother thing to be present to step down from his position of divine authority and to empty himself as Paul's, gospel, or as Paul's letter to the Philippians says, enough that he would become a helpless baby, a human born in the most humble of conditions, in need of parental guidance, 
of someone else to sustain him. That is the presence of God. So today as we look at our text, we see, we see boldly how, uh, how Christ's pursuit of us, Christ's presence with us demands a reciprocal, reckless pursuit of him. You know, I've read this story every year for the last uh, 20-something years. And uh, as I was reading through it this week, prepping for this, there was something that stood out to me that I'd never seen before about how Christ calls us to a reckless pursuit of him in the midst of this Christmas text. So as we dive into the word, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter two, we're gonna dive in a little bit deeper. Um, So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter two, let's start in verse 13. In verse 13, it says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they, the shepherds, they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd had said to them. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The challenge of reading a first century text and really, um, really pulling out what, uh, what God is saying, what, what Luke is trying to tell us is that there's a gap in our cultural understanding. You see, what we read is, is the text, but what they read as a first century reader and what oftentimes the author is, is writing is what is behind the text. You see, there's a different cultural understanding. Let me give you an example. Right, if I told you that I have a meeting in Katy at five o'clock and I drove through downtown, you would either think that that meeting is of incredible importance or that I am a masochist, (laughs) right? Because we understand Houston culture. We understand what it's like to drive in Houston traffic. If I told you that that the Texans had won the Super Bowl, you would say, oh my goodness, what a, what a Cinderella story. They went from being one of the worst teams last year to, man, C.J. Stroud, he must be an incredible rookie. He must have gotten rookie of the year, right? We would, we would know and understand something about this, uh, this culture because we understand Houston sports culture. Or if I, if I told you that the, the Aggies won a championship, you would automatically know that I was a liar, Sorry, I had to. In our text today, there's something happening beneath the surface. There's something happening behind the text because as we read this, as we step behind, we see a whole different layer, a whole different understanding of what Luke is trying to do, the story that he's trying to tell. So this, this, gospel, this gospel account is written about 60 to 80 years after these events actually happened. And so they're they're written in light of the communion table. 
They're written in light of an understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross, of, of the end of the story. They're written in light of the, the disciples going out and sharing the gospel all throughout the world and, and the, the stories and acts. These are written in light of those things. Luke is writing this with intent. He's not just chronicling all of the events that happened that day, but he's writing them with a specific purpose, a, a specific, specific message for us to retain. He's writing, uh, the author, the, the readers would have understood this in, con, in the context of the, the kings that he mentions in this story, both Herod and Caesar. They would read it with disdain, this visceral reaction to Herod who created infanticide and killed uh, so many Jewish babies in that time. And they would read it with an understanding of who Augustus Caesar was, this puppet king who desired so deeply to be known and to be great that he created this census to bring all of the people together so that he could tax them, so that he could build his, his structures and become known for, his, uh, for the, the wealth that he brought in. We would see the juxtaposition of the two kings and the audacity that we would have a, a king born in a manger in the most humble position in opposition to the, the kings of pride and the king of humility. We would understand this in light of the Lamb of God, of Jesus and the atonement that he, he created for us on the cross. We're not gonna get deep into atonement theology here. Uh, we're not gonna get into animal sacrifice, but if you wanna come back for Lent, uh, we're gonna dive into that a little bit and the importance of uh, the atonement for uh, that culture then and also for us today. We would have read this text in light of the facts that the angels would proclaim this good news to the shepherds. The lowest of the low in society, it would almost feel scandalous that they would be the ones that would hear it first, but almost so scandalous that it actually fits with the story arc of the, the Bible. Because the king who was born would be born to the Davidic line. And David... David, who was a king, was first a humble shepherd. All of these things would be happening behind the surface and the first century reader would know these things. This story, it's, a beautif it's beautifully crafted by God to oppose every image that we have of a hierarchical kingship. It's crafted to tell us that there's something significant about this child, that he would become that he would be present with us and step down from his divine authority. And it would lead us into an understanding as Luke lays out the rest of his gospel that there's something profound about his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his life, his relationship with the natural things of this world. He would lay out, this is the beginning of something that we can't even begin to fathom or imagine. N.T. Wright says it this way. He's uh, one of my favorite uh, authors. He's one of my favorite um, uh, New Testament theologians. Uh, I would say of the 21st century, he's probably the, the, greatest, uh, the greatest theological mind um, in, my, in my opinion. 
Um, but N.T. Wright says this about the Christmas story. Christmas isn't a, a cute story about a baby in a manger. It's about the invasion of God into his own creation, the reassertion of his rightful kingship within it, and the inauguration of a new order that will ultimately transform everything. It will ultimately transform everything, starting with you. In verse 15 and 16, we really kind of dive into um, this, this story of the shepherds. Luke is very particular to include them as main characters in this story, and I think for a very good reason. Verse 15, we see, uh, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. This word intrigued me as I, as I read. They hurried off. Another translation says they made haste. This word is in the Greek is uh, spudo, which we get our word speed from. This creates this imagery of, of the way that the, the, the shepherds responded to this word, this proclamation from on high. They left in a hurry. They, 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 they took off. There was with, with haste, with speed, with, with reckless abandon, with uh, no regard for what they were leaving behind. There was, there was an urgency to their leaving. You see, I think what this lays out for us as we look behind the text is that they didn't just leave. They left everything. You see, a shepherd's livelihood was, was left there in the field unattended. It doesn't say that all of them left except for one so that they could stay and watch the flock. No, they all saw what they saw. They experienced what they experienced. They, they saw that God's passionate pursuit of them to be present with them in Bethlehem and they took off immediately. And they left with reckless abandon all of their livelihood behind. As they left these sheep, they, they weren't in, in nice, neat pins with, uh, with cameras and, uh, and ring cameras so they could see and scare them off when they came. You know, they, I mean, they, they were left very vulnerable out in the, the wilderness, the, um, the, mountain, the mountainous regions of, of Bethlehem where lions and tigers and bears, oh my, would, would come and, and, and attack these sheep. They were sitting ducks. They were prey to be left. As a shepherd, you never, ever, ever, ever leave your flock behind. But this, this was different. This was worth the pursuit. I find it interesting that in the same gospel, in Luke's gospel, in uh, 13 chapters later, he tells the story of, of a, a shepherd leaving the 99 in pursuit of the one. Now, I'm not suggesting that we rewrite this translate, the, the Luke 15 um, understanding of Jesus pursuing the lost sheep, the, the shepherd as Jesus pursuing the lost sheep. But, uh, but what I am suggesting is that, that there is a reciprocal pursuit here that Jesus when Jesus would leave passionately and recklessly, leave the 99 to pursue the one, we also see the shepherds in Jesus' story leave the 99 to pursue the one, Lamb of God. 
I think Luke is, is telling us this, this, giving us an understanding that his pursuit of us is worth our pursuit of him in return. Matthew's gospel uh, fleshes this out even further. If we see in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells this parable of, um, of a man who's wandering in a field, walking through a field and he finds a treasure. And he, he, he leaves the treasure, buries the treasure again and goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy this field because the treasure is so valuable. I think what's, what's really interesting about this, this parable is that, uh, that it lays out this, this understanding of this reciprocal pursuit in the gospel. Some commentators remark that this, uh, the unique thing about this parable is that it both tells the story of, of us being the treasure and God leaving all that he had in heaven, his divine authority in heaven and coming down to be with us on earth, to give up all that he had on the cross so that he might capture us in our hearts. And it also rightly tells the story of us leaving all that we have, selling all that we have to pursue the gospel of Christ because it's worth it. You see, the story of the gospel is that Jesus came to save us from the terrible condemning circumstances of our sin and to restore us, as John says, to the fullness of life. Life to the fullest, overflowing and abundant life. And that's a gift that we are each given. But friends, that only happens when we leave our sheep behind and pursue after Jesus humbly. The humble and almighty Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We don't know these shepherds' backstories. I think it's interesting that Matthew never gives us anything on these shepherds. And I think it's intentional. Because for us to respond to Christ in this way, it doesn't matter what our past has been. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we've done to get into this place in our lives. All that it matters is that we hear and that we joyfully respond. We know, the only thing that we know about these shepherds is that they are not worthy of receiving this high of a message. They are not enough. They're not significant enough to receive this message this proclamation from on high that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is born. This would be a message given to the dignitaries. This would be a, a message given to royalty that a king is born and that you're invited to come and, 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 and celebrate this. The only thing that we know about these shepherds is that they're, they're dirty, they're lowly, they're outcasts, and that they're not worthy. But what they do is they respond to the message of Christ coming, to the presence of God, to this God's passionate pursuit of mankind with joy. And they're given the privilege of being the first eyewitness testimony to Jesus in the world. I'm gonna invite the, the band to come forward. In a few minutes, we're gonna um, proclaim our, uh, our call to be the light of the world as we raise our candles. But I want to first recognize that some of us hear this message of the presence of God 
with a skeptic's heart, and that's okay. We hear this and we say, uh, God, I understand that Jesus came and was present with them 2,000 years ago, but I don't, I don't experience that today. I don't, I, don't, I don't experience God's presence in my daily life. Like when I was going through it this year, where was God? When I was really struggling, when, when my dad died and when, uh, when I, got, I was wretched with anger, when somebody at work did something against me and when uh, I felt like I was drowning in stress. My dad didn't actually die. Sorry, kids. <laughs> but when, when all of these things happen in our lives, I really put them through it through there for a second. When, uh, when all of these stresses and anxieties are happening in our lives, where was God? And sometimes we, cl- we proclaim that with a, an honest heart to say, God, where were you? Well, Christ promises us, God promises us in Jeremiah 29. He says, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You see, oftentimes when we go through those challenges in life and we are, are pushing back against the, this idea, this, this uh, notion of the presence of God being with us even for today, we are we're pursuing something that is contrary to God and we're, we're walking away from God. And so as God is pursuing behind us, we, we can't recognize his presence because we're not walking in any way that is seeking after God. But he says, if you seek me, If you turn and you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Church, this is is what we aim to be at, at Kingwood Methodist Church. A church of terribly imperfect people committed to seeking a perfect God. We all enter this journey from a different point in our lives. And so we're committed to embracing you however you enter the journey and walking with you as you seek to passionately and recklessly pursue after this God who pursued you so passionately. And for those of you who are seeking after Jesus, our call, our call is to proclaim. Verse 17 as we see the response of the shepherds, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. When they had seen him, their response, their response was to spread the word. We've talked about what it means for us to be the light in the silence, for us to reflect the image of God, for us to reflect the light of God out into the world. And that is, that is the, the call that the shepherds responded to is to spread the light of Christ. And so as we light these candles, as we sing Silent Night together, we will too spread the light of Christ. Mm-hmm.